I am your mystery maven, Roxy Zwicker from New England Curiosities, here with you on this gloomy evening. So if this is the first time that you are tuning in and the first time that you and I are meeting, again, my name is Roxy Zwicker from New England Curiosities. Many years ago, I was coined New England's scary godmother in the Boston Herald. Leave that one for you to decide. But I am the purveyor of New England Curiosities, located in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I have been doing ghost tours on the seacoast for about 20 years, and I have been telling ghost stories professionally since about 1994. So we're gonna start in just a memento mori. Um, make sure that you are liking and following the Wheeling Curiosities on Facebook. You can also find me on Instagram at RoxyZW if you like photos of spooky cool and historic places here in New England. This particular story I found in an old, old newspaper ar archive. And a lot of the stories that I'm going to be sharing with you tonight actually come from some of the research that I've done over the years. And have I, as I've mentioned before, sometimes these stories don't really get a chance to see the light of day. So tonight's stories are from the archives and they're all pretty old. So this one goes back to 1844. And I found it in the December 30th edition of the St. Johnsbury Caledonian newspaper. Now, while this story was in a Vermont newspaper, it actually happened in New Boston, New Hampshire at a crossroads. Don't you love a story at a crossroads? Anything could happen at a crossroads. The burial of a body could happen at a crossroads. So at a crossroads on a hill in New Boston, New Hampshire, was this pretty popular tavern. Now taverns weren't just places to stop and have a drink. Taverns were places where you would sleep over and of course rest for the night and then continue on the next day to the next tavern stop. Now behind this tavern was a long sloping hill that happened to have a pond on it. And the pond seemed kind of odd, but it actually occurred in a natural hollow. Now, just beyond this hollow, a little bit further down the hill, was a really rough-looking house. It was pretty poorly maintained. In fact, those who passed by this house silently wondered how someone could live in this shabby old shack of a place, let alone live there with a five-year-old child. No father figure ever appeared or even visited the house. And it was just a young girl and her mother that had lived there. And of course, it was no secret in town that people pitied the child and her deplorable living situation. So one morning, a local farmer who had risen early for his daily chores heard a soft murmuring and crying underneath the porch steps of his house. He looked in the empty space underneath the stairs as the sunlight seemed to trace lines across a small, shadowy face. And upon a closer look, he saw a young child, dirty in her bare feet 
and essentially dressed in rags. She seemed terribly upset about something. So he walked her out from underneath the steps, out into the light so he could see her. And he could tell right away that most likely she wasn't even eating well for the look at her small frame. And the farmer questioned her as to why she was hiding underneath his porch, and certainly so early in the morning. She said that she had come to tell him something frightening, but she feared that her mother would kill her if her mother found out that she had run away. She said she was really hoping to tell someone, but she had become too afraid. Well, it was up to the farmer to quiet this child's fears, and he soon learned a horrid revelation from her that her mother had the previous night had murdered and robbed a traveler who had stopped at her house looking for directions to the tavern. It had stormed heavily all that night long. And this strange man who had come looking for the shelter ended up falling asleep in front of her fireplace out on the wooden floor. When all of a sudden the child said that she had woken up in the middle of the night because she had heard this loud groan and sort of this thud on the floor. She said that when she peeked out into the room, she saw her mother there killing the stranger with a knife. And then she saw her mother reach into his pocket and take out the money that he had there. And well, she took the money and put it behind the chimney and actually dragged the dead body behind the chimney and had left it there for a space. As first light dawned in the morning, the woman, her mother, took the body down to the pond and dumped it into the pond behind the house. In fact, she had said that she had this long wooden pole that she used to push this body into the pond. The poor girl said that she was so frightened by what she had seen that she could not sleep at all that night. And she had also said that when her mother had pushed the body into the pond with a stick, that she had put some rocks into the pockets of the coat that the traveler was wearing to help weigh him down. So it was a mile and a half that this girl had run to the farmer's house and she seemed absolutely frightened. Well, the farmer took the child into the town and word soon got out of what had happened that night before during the storm. And before you knew it, the constables, along with a large crowd, assembled right in front of this woman's home. And the woman came out of the house and she turned stone white with the accusation. And she refused the officers really any questions they had asked. She said she knew nothing. She didn't even want to let them in the house. However, they managed to come in the house and she stood in front of the chimney and the officers naturally wanted to get a look behind the chimney to see if there was any evidence around and she just would not allow it. She asserted her innocence over and over again. And finally, an officer managed to get behind the chimney and there he found a large knife. And the floor where the knife was, you guessed it, was bloody. And even still, with the knife and the bloody floor, the woman denied 
what had happened. She asserted her innocence and said there was no possible way. And she said that her child was probably lying in revenge for a whipping that she had gotten for being bad. There was no possible way that this could have happened, that her child had to be inventing this story. Now, it seemed pretty plausible that there was some truth to this. I mean, how could a five-year-old child make this story up? Well, next thing you know, it was lots of promises of protection, that everything was going to be okay to this child, that don't worry, we're not going to take you in, we just want to find out what had happened. And the child revealed where the money had been hidden. It had been hidden on the grounds and they actually had to dig it up. Well, the mother was placed in custody. Clearly, we had the murder weapon, we had the story, we had blood, we had the money, we had everything except for the dead body. Now, according to the child, the dead body had been thrown into the pond. Well, seemed easy enough. Just go out into the pond and look for that dead body. Well, folks went down to the pond. They used grappling hooks and tried to drag this pond. And as much as they dragged it, they really could not pull up a whole lot. Certainly they did not pull up body at all. Now this pond was about a quarter of a mile wide, so you can imagine how long it might have taken. Well, they tried and tried, and strangely enough, what they ended up pulling up was pieces of the pole that she had used to stuff the body down into the pond, and there were bits of fabric, scraps of clothing, attached to that pole. And on the handle, just a little bit of blood matching the same blood that was found inside the house behind the chimney. So now we had another piece of evidence there, but still no body. Well, it was soon decided that a real search of this pond, because we didn't even know who it was that was murdered. So we knew it was a traveler. And upon all investigation of the people in the community, there was not a single person in this community that was missing. So we knew it was not someone from New Boston, New Hampshire. So who could it have been? And still, where was their body? Well, the authorities ended up having to dig a sluice on the hill, essentially a channel to channel out the water from this pond to get down there and see really what was going on at the bottom of the pond. Maybe, you know, from those rocks, the body had been weighted down to the pond. So they dug the sluice into the hill to drain it. And it really took quite some time to drain this big pond. And finally, when the water rushed out, it essentially flooded down the hill. In a, in a mass of, you know, black mud, thick with dead logs. Uh, there were turtles, catfish, eels, snakes, um, frogs, you name it, all washing out through this sluice that they had built. But even though all of that had washed out, there was still no body. 
So now it was up to the authorities to go down to the thick, muddy bottom of the pond to see perhaps maybe it was down in the thick mud. And the crowd stood there awestruck. They were waiting for that fateful moment for that body to be pulled up and out. However, while they were digging for this body in the mud and the muck, there were a few people in town who started to become really suspicious of what was going on. They were wondering if there was some sort of trickery going on or maybe there was something wrong with the story. Something just did not seem right to some people as they stood there. And the pond, the muck that was left, was scraped. They scraped through this deep, dark settlement. Have you ever seen the bottom of a pond when it's drained so you can imagine? And still the mystery remained. I mean, again, we've got the evidence from the story. The child finding, you know, the, the farmer and telling him the story. The knife, the bloody pole, the money, the guilt that this woman seemed to have. And here we have this unspeakable crime. And this fruitless search to try to find this body. So everybody's now even, you know, either skeptical of what's gone on or they're more afraid. So again, speculation was running rampant. And people wondered, you know, where was the body? Would the body ever, ever be found? So eventually, the woman was released from custody because they did not have enough to hold her. Again, they did not find the body. And people wondered if she was guilty of some sort of crime as the days, weeks, and eventually months went on. And she continued, as people questioned her, to deny the murder. Well, after a few months had passed, strange thing happened. Folks in town noticed that what used to be this deep, dank, muddy pond had now been growing in quite well. In fact, all sorts of plants were growing there. The hill actually looked a lot better without that pond. The sluice had all filled back in, and it just seemed rather odd that the area looked a lot better when they were finished than when they had first started. Well, strangely enough, there is one other chapter to this story. And when we think about the tavern keeper, he was really benefiting from this piece of land that had been all fixed up after the digging in this pond. In fact, he was talking about expanding his tavern quite a bit, maybe even building some additional buildings on the site so he could accommodate more travelers. Hmm, something strange with this story, don't you think? Well, all of a sudden, as soon as he had made his announcement, this woman again, who had been accused of the murder, but no body found, she was released, living back in her house. All of a sudden, she came to town one day with this huge revelation. She decided to come forward with the true details of this story. In fact, she was pretty upset with the plans the tavern keeper had made, and people in town were shocked and rather astonished to hear what had happened next. Can you guess? Can you guess what had happened next? Well, I have to tell you that this was actually a scheme that was put together by the tavern keeper and the woman who lived in this house. He had hoped that he could improve his property by having this pond removed. And again, he wanted to build these houses. So they hatched this plan. 
that he would give her $50 to tell this fictitious story to her daughter, rehearse it with her, send the daughter to the local farmer about this murder that had taken place. And he was going to pay her $50. And he, in fact, had given her the $30 to plant as the traveler allegedly was robbed. So as the few months had gone on and he was making improvements to his property and finally had talked about expanding his tavern, he had never paid the woman the $50 that he had promised. So she had come forward to say that this indeed was all a scam. It was all a lie. Now, of course, she couldn't be held accountable for a murder because a murder did not happen. And when the details of the story came out, I mean, we had all of that evidence, right? We learned that she had actually killed a pig, smeared a knife and the pole with its blood, and she had schooled her child in that story to tell it exactly as she had told it. Well, people were shocked and they could not believe this whole lie that had been told. So essentially, she was run out of town, and this man who was running this tavern, nobody wanted to stay there after this. Everybody knew that he was dishonest, and it all essentially backfired on him. The next thing you know, he wasn't building those additions, and he ended up moving out of town, and the tavern became abandoned. We have a few abandoned taverns here in New England, and as time went on, just a few years had passed, in the middle of the night, there was this mysterious fire in the tavern, and the tavern burned to the ground. Is that some sort of karmic implication there? The shack was gone, the tavern burned to the ground, and you had this whole story that was a lie. Now remember, this is back in 1844. So she was never held accountable, and they managed to get that pond cleaned, drained, and everything seemed to be fine. So. Sometimes our stories are a little bit more than meets the eye. So I hope you enjoy that one. Um, I love stories with a twist. And indeed, that one happened to have a twist. Now, in that story, we had talked about the property, the tavern no longer being there, the shack no longer being there. Well, guess what? In our next story, the building is still there. In fact, this next place I'm going to tell you about still stands and is now apartments. I have to wonder if maybe I should take a field trip and see if this place is still haunted. I always have a little bit of a suspicion when I read these old stories from 100, 150 years ago, and if that building is still standing, if there are still strange goings on, if there are still ghosts in it. So this particular story actually came from the Boston Globe. And we're gonna go back to March 31st, 1895 for this story. Now we're going to move our way out of New Hampshire and we're gonna head over to Maine. This story is from Sacco, again, 1895. Now the headline of this story may have stopped you in your tracks where the headline said, Unseen Hands and Ghosts Walked. Stephen Furbish of Sacco declares his house is haunted and will move. Neighbor at three o'clock in the morning saw a white rooster perched high up on the chimney. That was your headline. What is the story we are going to find? So Stephen Furbish, who was the junk dealer in town, 
He apparently was looking for another apartment. As soon as possible, he wanted to move out of his location. He firmly believed that the house he was living in at 109 Lincoln Street was haunted. And the story went as this. During the past winter, he had said he had heard many mysterious noises in different parts of the house. He had talked about doors opening and closing, that they were opening and closing by these unseen forces. And so much so that it was keeping him up at night. In fact, the stove covers, remember the old metal burner covers on the old iron stoves? Pretty heavy to pick up. You actually had to have a tool to put in there and lift those covers up and off. And he was saying that these covers were coming off on their own, ending up in other parts of the house. They'd walk out of the room and moments later, these stove covers were off. And he said life was generally miserable for him and his family because of the ghosts. He also had said that his children didn't even want to go to bed alone. And when he did his chores in the barn on the property, he always carried this big club with him to defend himself against the ghost should it manifest out of the shadows while he was working. So... As he continued on in the house, we have to look at a little bit of the history of the house. Um, at the time, it was one of the oldest houses in town. Again, we're back in 1895. It was built out of brick, and at one time there was a coating of cement on that brick. And over the years, some of that cement had fallen off, and the blocks sort of looked like a like an old southern mansion that had been deserted after the Civil War. It was looking pretty shabby and pretty rough, almost taking on a personality of its own. And for years, even before he had moved into the house, the house had the reputation of being haunted. And one of the first stories related to a man named John Andrews, who had lived there and he said he heard rappings or knockings in the house at all different hours of the night in different sections of the house. And he said he had first heard the noises after his mother had died. And he truly believed that perhaps maybe it had something to do with his mother's death because it really got quite loud after she had passed. Strange sounds were heard coming out of the closets, and there were other little happenings in the house that indicated that perhaps there were ghosts in there and unseen occupants inhabiting this space. Now, although initially the family didn't believe that the house was haunted, they were unable to account for all of these unearthly sounds that were happening. And eventually, they became used to all of the ghostly goings on. And again, this was before Furbish had moved in. And that's something that I've noticed over the years of doing tours and talks when I talk to people, that some people have learned to live with their ghosts. I've talked to many people who say that they just talk to the ghosts like they're people in the house, just like them, and they've learned to get along. But in this story, as far as anyone knows, no one was uh, really bothered by the ghosts until, of course, Furbish had lived in the house. And he believed that the house was a complete headquarters for ghosts. He believed that there were several different spirits that were in there. And his whole comment uh, to the news was that he just wanted to get out of there and let them continue 
to live in the house and they could have all the room they wanted. And that way his family wouldn't be bothered. And he said that really the first time he had noticed anything strange in the house, it was around his daughter. And his daughter's name was Rose. Isn't it funny how sometimes spirits make themselves known to children? We have lots and lots of stories of people saying, you know, my child got an imaginary friend and I don't know who they were talking to and come to find out that imaginary friend ended up being a ghost. So Rose said that when she went to bed, she would leave her bedroom door wide open to the hallway. And when she woke in the morning, she would find that the bedroom door was closed rather tightly, almost difficult to open. Now, none of the family members had been in that room or near that room or closed that door all night long. And of course, the head of the household said he couldn't account for any of the strange occurrences that were happening night after night. And they decided to sort of do a, a close watch and see if they noticed if there was somebody in the hall or perhaps a strange wind that was closing the door. And they could not come up for any reasoning as to why this door kept closing and opening. And it was a short time after that they noticed that there were some very strange, unearthly noises coming from one of the rooms in the house. Now, there was a gentleman who lived in one of those rooms previously. His name was Billy Osborne, and he had died in one of the more noisy rooms of the house. And soon they started hearing these strange groans coming from another room in the house, and that was where that man I had mentioned earlier, John Andrews, that was where his mother had died. So we had two deaths in the house in both rooms, quite noisy, not just doors opening and closing, but actually hearing someone. In fact, he had said that he had heard someone walking around as if they were moving around the furniture that they were walking from, you know, the desk to the bureau. He heard their footsteps in the house. And he said that he really had become quite frightened of being in the house. And as soon as it got dark out, he always kept his club nice and handy because again, he didn't know who or what he was going to encounter. And then before you know it, things went from bad to worse. And the ghost was showing up almost on a nightly basis in the house. And that's when, you know, the stove covers were being moved. You know, the poor wife, Mrs. Furbish, she couldn't take care of that stove. It was constantly, almost enchanted, if you will. It was constantly on the move. And she became really quite frustrated. She'd go out to get some wood for the stove and she'd come in and the covers would constantly be off. And it was just in a matter of, you know, a minute or two, she'd go out of the room and she noticed that she had to put them back on. However, one night she had even said that she saw a real live ghost in the house. She said the night was darker than pitch. And of course the wind was moaning outside in the distance and you could hear a really sort of sad, forlorn sound, you know, just the kind of night that, you know, ghouls and goblins are supposed to be prowling about. It was one of those really dark and spooky nights. And she said right around the midnight hour, she was coming downstairs looking to get a drink. And as she turned around and she reached the bottom of the landing of the stairs to go upstairs, she saw this brilliant light at the top of the stairs, almost blinding. And when she took a good close look, she said she saw 
a woman standing up there who is wearing a white dress, a dress white as snow, standing at the top of the stairs. And she described her as being about six feet tall. She was holding a candle at the top of the stairs and the candle was reflecting off of all of that white. Mrs. Forbes said it felt like she was standing there for a half an hour. In reality, it was probably, you know, maybe a minute at best. And she said the woman just stepped away and completely disappeared. And she left no trace behind. She ran up the stairs, looked down the hall, and she said she was actually quite frightened. She said she had never been as frightened as she was going up those stairs to see this ghostly woman, to see if she was there. And she was so frightened that she couldn't even find her voice to scream. If you ever had those moments, maybe when you're watching a movie or you're in a haunted place, like you can't even find your voice. Like you're trying to get that voice out. So she said after that point, she had never seen uh, another you know, occurrence of this mysterious woman um, in the snow white dress carrying the lantern. Although when we look at the story and we hear all of these different accounts, you know, you might have to wonder, you know, are the Furbishes a little bit nuts? You know, people were wondering, you know, is, is Mr. Furbish maybe, you know, he's, he's crazy. Well, strangely enough, he was known all around town as an honorable man, someone who had a really good reputation. He went to church all the time. He was a very well-known citizen. Strangely enough, his neighbor had a story to go along with the accounts that he was telling in the days before he had moved out of the house. So according to the newspaper article, one of his neighbors, who also was very well known, very well respected, said that something woke him up at about three o'clock in the morning. He wasn't quite sure what it was that woke him up, but he felt like he needed to go to the window and look over at the Furbish house. And he said, as he was looking out the window, he saw the chimney way up high on the top of the house. And he said he saw something really strange there. He went and called his wife to come and see it with her own eyes because he didn't want to be perceived as crazy. And they both stood in the window and they saw this strange white form up on the chimney. They were trying to figure out what it was. You know, the, the Furbishes had roosters and chickens, but there was, you know, no white rooster that could have made it all the way to the top of the house, let alone perched on top of the chimney there. So he told his story, of course, to the Furbishes and there was no evidence that any, you know, white rooster had made its way up onto the chimney in the wee hours of the morning. There was no explanation for it at all. So as he relayed his story to the folks in town, there started to be a sense that there probably was something going on in the house because you had stories before the Furbishes moved in. Now you had their stories and now the neighbors were seeing things as well. So Stephen Furbish and his family eventually moved out of the house, um, to another location in town that didn't seem to be so haunted and the house still stands today in Saco, Maine. One must wonder, is it still haunted? You know, so we're 135 some odd years later, it still stands as apartments. Are the ghosts of the past wandering around? Have the people that moved into the house, have they learned to live with the ghosts that are there? I'll leave it for you to decide. 
So one of these days I've got to take a ride up there. Maybe I will take some pictures of the house and if I do I'll post them and we can take a look together to see if there's anything odd in the window. Certainly I'd be happy to take pictures of the chimney to see if I can see this mysterious white form if it is in fact a, a white rooster that has these uncanny abilities to fly to the top of the house or is there something more? Uh, it could be a rooster as a weather vane. Hmm. So that is my story from Saco, Maine. Again, that was in the Boston Globe uh, back in 1895. And again, I'm just amazed that the building still stands. Hmm. I wonder. All right. So let's move on to our next story. So for our next story, we're going to work our way over to the Bay State, over to Massachusetts. Yeah. So this is from the Berkshires, and this is a story that I found uh, in the New England Farmer, and it dates back to August 3rd, 1901. And I like this story because there are a couple of layers of ghost stories. And I also like this story because if you are a non-believer, this story really gives you something to ponder. And it also sort of shows you what happens when someone changes their mind about whether or not there are ghosts and spirits. And perhaps why we even have ghosts or spirits. So this story has a few different layers. Now, I haven't been out to the Berkshires for probably a couple of years right now. Um, I think I'm due for another visit out there. Certainly a lot longer than I had spent last time. The last time I went, I was out there for a couple of nights and it was really quick. I was doing a paranormal conference out in Lenox, which was so much fun with my friend, um, Sam Baltrusis, Jeff Belanger was there, and a lot of folks in the paranormal world were there. And I had just sort of gotten my feet into some of the haunted places out there to do some updated stories. And I had to make my way back to the seacoast for some tours and events. So I am due back out to the Berkshires. So again, this is from the New England Farmer, August 3rd, 1901. So concerns a man named Timothy Dole, and he was a fairly well-respected blacksmith in a little village amongst the Berkshire Hills, which are very scenic, such a beautiful part of Massachusetts. Tim was really hardworking. He was said to have a huge heart, and a lot of people really just liked him. They liked his attitude, the way that he dealt with people. He was almost like everybody's big brother. Even though he was just such this great nice guy he did have one fault and maybe it's not a fault maybe in your eyes you wouldn't see it as a fault but he was morbidly superstitious like all sorts of stuff would just freak him out um he believed in spirit wrappings we were just talking about spirit wrappings in our last story he believed in haunted houses he believed in ghosts and Tim's uh, dearest friend was Farmer John Davis, or as most folks in town uh, called him, Honest John. 
And he was known by everybody for making fun of Tim. Um, he thought it was just foolishness, believing in ghosts and spirits and spirit wrappings. He's like, come on, you know, this stuff isn't true. You know, it's all just tall tales. What are you talking about? So people sort of knew, you know, they were great friends, but one was a believer and one wasn't. And whenever they were together, they would just sit and talk for hours. And Tim would always manage to bring the conversation back around to ghosts and spirits. He just, he just knew how to talk about his favorite thing. So all that winter long, the two were together and Tom, of course, you know, would close up shop early, head over to his friend's house and they would spend long winter evenings by the fire, um, talking about spiritualism, talking about ghosts. And it was just a, a really fun pairing of two gentlemen and two very different looks at ghosts and spirits. Honest John, um, John Davis, you know, even though he was a, a non-believer and he, you know, uh, talked about adventures through the country, he was always a, a good listener. And one of their favorite stories to talk about uh, was really kind of a, a horrible, scary story. And it was about a haunted house that was haunted by a headless ghost. So again, this is sort of the story within the story. So here we have this horrible tale, these two men, the believer and the non-believer telling it. And the old house stood in, um, in their neighborhood, but according to the tale, no one could live in this house for whenever the housewife of the household attempted to prepare breakfast in the morning, there always appeared to be this man who would show up in the kitchen without a head. And he appeared to have this scarred and bloody neck. And it was the most horrible sight as he described the story. And the story behind the story is there was only one way to have a ghost that looked like that. And of course, it had to be the results of a grisly murder. So the story had actually run in the newspaper that a terrible crime had been committed. And it was a most brutal murder. And essentially, it was about a simple, honest peddler who was looking for a place to stay for the evening. And this, this story, there was actually a death. Like, they did find the body. So before you say, Roxy, we just did that story. It's a different story. And he was looking to stay, of course, at this house. As breakfast was being prepared, he was beheaded by a man with an axe. And, well... It was a grisly scene. Strangely enough, the murderer in this story was never found. So as the two men were sharing this tale of the haunted house and this man without a head who they never had found his head, the horse that he had ridden to the house, which had been in the stable, was still there after the death. And allegedly the stable had become quite haunted as well. In fact, it was said that no matter how securely you fashioned the ties of the horses to the posts in the stable, that they would just run wildly away. And in some cases, they would try to tie the horses up with iron chains and they would still get away. Now, John Davis had never fastened a horse, but his father had told him the story about how they would try to tie up these horses and they would just take off. And again, the house itself was 
was quite empty. And John's mother, who was said to be, you know, quite the pariah of the community, she was a noble Christian woman. She said she had seen this headless man sitting beside the fire as she looked through the windows of the house uh, in the morning. So on two occasions, she said she knew that this house was haunted and nobody was going to dispute her again. She was above reproach, had this great reputation. So no one really wanted to venture into this house at night. And certainly the stables themselves had uh, become quite haunted in their own right. So... As you can imagine, these two men love to share stories of, of ghosts and strange goings on. And every so often, there was somebody else who would sit down to hear them swap these ghostly tales. And his name was George Cowie. And he was an educated, refined man who was kind of amused by the show of these two men debating the ghost stories and some of the scariest ghost stories like the one that I had just shared with you. So he was the nephew of Deacon Coey in town, who was a wealthy farmer and didn't live too far from um, where Davis had lived. So, of course, they would sit down and all share these stories, and he found it all to be quite amusing. So the night before Christmas, he happened to stop into John's kitchen, and he was, you know, on the night before Christmas, talking about the dead coming back from the other side. You know, what a great thing to be doing on Christmas Eve, you know, scary ghost stories. So they were talking about, you know, sort of life after death or, you know, the world of spirits and spirit communication and the sounds of wrapping on pans and wrapping on walls to let you know that that spirit is there. What a great conversation to have on Christmas Eve. Tim had just been down um, to the city and had learned a little bit more about spiritualism. He had attended some events and, you know, the whole full-fledged seance. He was very into that. And his beliefs really now were stronger than ever. He was absolutely certain that there was something that happened to the spirit after death. So they were going into this long, deep conversation about death and the other side. But before George left that evening, he had said, you know, I'm going away tomorrow. I'm going to head out west. And he winked at John and Tim and said, if I am killed before I return, I will let you know through spirit. I'll wrap on the headboard of your bed at night. Spirits are always supposed to be more active at night. And I'll wrap very softly on the wall. And I'll get louder and louder and louder until it sounds like a big bass drum. And that way you know that it is me, George. And no matter what hour it happens, you must believe it and you must let each other know that, yes, indeed, there are ghosts. So you as a non-believer, you're going to have to go ahead and believe, but you have to share the story. So further, he said, that clock that is on the shelf over there, you'll know when that clock rings and it rings for an hour if it rings for an hour solid, you'll know that that is the hour that I've died. Now, this is kind of an ominous thing to be talking about. You know, on Christmas Eve, he's on his way out west and he's talking about dying and what he's going to do in the afterlife by, you know, banging on the bed, banging on the wall and getting this clock to ring for an hour straight. So, of course, you know, they they all laughed, you know, fare thee well, you know, safe travels out west. And weeks and months went by and nothing was heard from him. 
And now it's the beginning of May. So we were there on Christmas Eve. Now it's months later and it's the beginning of May, which is just right around the corner. And it was springtime. It was time to do the horseshoeing. Everybody was really busy. But on Tuesday, May 4th, John had plowed all day long and he was really unusually tired that day. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to go to bed early. I don't know what's making me so tired. Ever have one of those days? Well, the middle of that night, he was awoken by the striking of the clock in the kitchen. And they thought it was 12 o'clock and the clock kept chiming. It kept striking and ringing and ringing and ringing and it just would not stop. And he wanted to know what is the problem with that clock? So he got up, went into the kitchen, took the clock down from the shelf, tried to adjust it so it wouldn't be ringing. He laid it on its back on the kitchen table and he could not stop it from ringing and it rang for a full solid hour, a full solid hour. And then finally it stopped. It was quiet as a mouse. So he said to himself, wow, this old clock must be worn out. I'm going to have to get a new one. And he returned to bed, slept straight through until daylight when he heard some horses coming into the yard and he went to the door and there was his old friend, Tim. And Tim was all excited. Of course, why do you think he was excited? And he called out and he said, so did your clock ring last night for an hour? And he said, well, yes. And he said, don't you remember what George told us? about his spirit manifesting to us. And he says, if you don't remember it, I do. He says, and I think George is dead. And of course he said, no, 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 that's nonsense. He's probably, you know, still kicking up somewhere out there. Totally, that could not be possible. Well, Tim said, I believe he's dead. All night long, I could not sleep. At around midnight, I was thinking about spirits. I, I could not stop thinking about ghosts. And there came a rap on the headboard of my bed. First, it was very faint, just like a tapping. And then it got louder and louder and louder. And then I asked if it was George and it got so loud, it sounded like a bass drum. He said it was such a thumping and bumping. It was like nothing you had ever heard of. And again, he asked if it was George. And it just kept getting louder and louder. And he said, I sat up all night long. He says, and as soon as it was daylight, I decided to come and see you. He said, surely you must have had a nightmare. That is just, it's just a coincidence. You just imagine that. Now, remember, he had just had that whole thing with the clock happen. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, come down to the shop this afternoon. We'll talk about it. No, that couldn't have happened. You know, it's just your imagination. So that afternoon... John went down to Tim's shop and he says, you know, I want to, I want to talk about what had happened last night. So they're there and they're, you know, sitting and chatting and talking about the strange events of the previous night, you know, about the wrappings when all of a sudden a man on a horse showed up and he was the, the agent who brought messages from one community to the other. And he said, oh, I saw your wagon out here, Mr. Davis, he said, and I thought if you were going right home from work that maybe you could deliver this message for me, if you could bring it over to the deacon's house. And of course he said, absolutely. So as soon as the messenger left, the two men looked at each other and they knew 
that they were going to have to go over the deacon's house with this message. And they could not hold back. They had to open up this message. And when they opened it up, they saw that it was a telegram from Denver, Colorado. And it was dated May 5th. And it said, your nephew, George Cohey, was killed in a railroad accident here last night. And both men stood there and stared at the telegram. And they both came to the realization that it was neither one of their imaginations that indeed this was the ghost of George who had visited them both that night. So they delivered the message to the deacon about his nephew George, of course, getting killed. What do you think happened? They were both believers in ghosts. So you just never know. Sometimes you just need that extra little bit of evidence to be completely convincing that there are ghosts. And sometimes that's what people ask for. You know, people that have ghostly experiences or uh, some sort of spirit in their house. They want to be absolutely sure. And while some folks might be afraid of that, some folks ask for more. They want to unequivocally know that it is not their imagination, that there is something that is happening, that there is somebody else in the house. It's kind of funny, you, you know, you might think that, you know, some people don't want to know. Some people do. And they want to be able to communicate with those spirits. And I'm very fascinated by the whole spiritualism movement. I think it's uh, quite amazing. And if I was alive during that time frame, I probably would hit the subscribe button on spiritualism. Because it's really just, it just opens up the door to so many possibilities. And, you know, while there, there were definitely some fraudsters out there, there were so many people that believed in to be the fly on the wall of a Victorian seance. Oh, I can only imagine. But what a fun couple of characters there. So again, that is from um, the Berkshires back in the early 1900s. I truly hope that you enjoyed that story. So I hope you enjoyed my tales this evening. If you had so much fun, you can always find me on Venmo. If you want to drop a couple of coins and then tip buckets, you're more than welcome to. No obligation, of course. And don't forget, I have a new book that's going to be coming out this fall, book number eight, which will be the main book of the dead. So I'm super excited about that as well. All right. So until we meet again, my friends, fans, and fiends, Stay spooky, my friends. I'll see you real soon. Sweet dreams.